0: I invite you to turn in God's word this morning to the gospel according to Luke. Looking at Luke and also to 1 Peter later in the message. We come to the focal point of the hope of the Christian. What Paul calls the matters of first importance in Christ. Dying for our sins, being raised for our justification, giving us hope. Of bodily resurrection as he's been raised bodily, we've been working our way through Luke's gospel and have come to the narrative on the resurrection. That passage can be found in 884 in your pew Bibles, or your Bibles there in front of you, and then first Peter, toward the back of your Bibles, page 1014. Be reading that, looking at that together. One theologian calls, says that the Gospels, they are passion narrative with extended introduction. What he means by that is there is a large focus on Christ's suffering and death in each Gospel with a, an extended introduction leading us into it, and we'll see that, we'll see that uh, what we've been seeing that, uh, and we see that as we look at the Gospels that there's quite a focus on Christ's. Death. We read about his death on Friday night, Good Friday, and they, as we, if we did any amount of looking, we'd see in the Gospels. There's quite a focus on uh, his, uh, the events surrounding his death. I've thought about that. If I went through all of this and I was going to write a, an account of all this, what I spend so much time talking about the death. And all of the details, and then we think about it perhaps in this way this morning. I want us to think about as we reflect on this, it actually relates quite well uh, to our common or to our present situation, The account of suffering, the gospel, suffering for the truth and the delay of His return. Well, not the delay. We think of it as a delay, but it is in God's plan that Christ will return, uh, at the time that he has appointed. And so as we wait, we want to look into the empty tomb and ask the question, where are we? Where are we? And how can this account help us? We're going to look at that from Luke 24 and 1 Peter chapter 1. Listen to the word, reading of God's word starting in verse 50 actually of chapter 23. Luke 23 and verse 50. Luke gives the background of uh, before the resurrection. I want to read that. This is the Word of God. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to the council's decision and action that is, to put Jesus to death. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. This was when the Jews would rest from all their labors and prepare for the Sabbath meal and for that day of of rest and worship. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, and Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home, marveling at what had happened. So far the reading of God's own holy word. May his blessing to the reading and proclamation of it this morning. Keep your Bibles open as we'll be looking at 1 Peter later on. We'll refer to this passage in some details. We're not going to look at all of the details surrounding his, uh, this, this uh, scene, as it were, this morning. But dear friends, we're going to be asking the question, how did we get here? How did we get to the empty tomb? We've looked at Luke's gospel over many weeks, and the gospel's been outlined in a rather broad way, but I think helpful way, when it says, when the title has been given this, the work given to Jesus. Luke's gospel is all about the work that was given to Jesus. And then these broad points, again, not detailed, but giving us a broad stroke of the gospel. First, it's beginning or inauguration, the work that Jesus came to do, chapters 1 through, partway through chapter 4. Then The middle of chapter 4, on into chapter 19, the second point, it's progress or continuation. And then the middle of chapter 19, on to the end of the gospel, the climax or culmination of the work given to Jesus. After Jesus had called his disciples, he permitted them to be eyewitnesses to his work, and to see his public ministry. And he healed, he fed multitudes, he did wonders, he taught crowds, he comforted the grieving, he fully entered into the experience of humanity. That's what we see very clearly in the Gospels, that he was very much man. As his disciples watched, they wondered. And as we study the Gospel of Luke, I trust we've been wondering at all of this teaching and the actions of Jesus to those around him. He lived in such a way that when he asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? He asked, who do the people say that I am? And they gave some answers, Elijah and some other answers. He said, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? Uh, Matthew chapter 16 records this. And Peter pipes up and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus then responds with these words, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Upon this confession which you have made, this this is a solid confession, my church will be built up on this. You are the Christ, you are the anointed one who has come to save God's people. From sin and death and hell, we can imagine how delighted Peter must have been after Jesus' statement. How confident that would have made him! If Jesus says that to you, what would you? How would you feel? You feel quite, quite uh, emboldened. Well, now I can. I've got the imprimatur. I've got the seal, or the, or the, the, the word of encouragement from the Messiah himself. And he turns around later as Jesus begins to speak and to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. And he says, this isn't a way for the Christ to talk. Maybe you didn't read the Old Testament. Maybe you don't know the scriptures. The Christ isn't going to act like this. But Peter didn't understand the Old Testament. And Jesus rebuked him and said in verse 23, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus told his disciples that they would suffer for the truth, just as he had. For no servant, he says, is greater than his master. If they persecute me, he says, they will persecute you. They would endure hardship and tribulation, but he would give them peace. They would overcome the world. And all of the fears, in spite of all of his teaching about the already not yet nature of the, of the work of God in their life, the already not yet nature of the new life in this age, the disciples imagined themselves to be made great now. They thought, well, he's going to make us great now. And they, even to the last hours of Jesus' life, before he's betrayed and turned over, they're arguing about who's the greatest. Who's going who's gonna to take over when Jesus is from disappeared from the scene, when he's gone? And Jesus has a word for Peter, the emboldened one, we could call him at this point. And his word is this, Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32. Simon, Simon, he said, behold, Satan demands, demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter looks with shock and says, well, Lord, I'll never betray you. I'll never, I'll never turn away from you, even if all the others do so, not me. The people had been praising Jesus at the beginning of this week. They were all emboldened to a, to a certain degree. They were sure that this was the king that God had sent to settle the score, to, to bring out vengeance to destroy the enemy of God's people and to establish the throne of David forever. But as he entered the city of David, as we saw last week, he did so on a donkey. Not exactly an intimidating scene. He did not take up the sword. He seemed hesitant to do what needed to be done to take over the city. He wasn't talking about, well, how do we, how do we lay a siege against the city? How are we going to do this? How is this going to work? He, he doesn't do any of that. They're a bit confused, to say the least. Then he's betrayed by one of his own. Then Peter did, in fact, deny him three times. And the disciples fled. Then Jesus suffered and died alone. And the days were very dark. And then we come to this scene, to the tomb. Three days after Jesus has died, the women come to the tomb, hoping to anoint the body, they're met by an empty tomb, first of all, perplexed about this, and then they're met by angels, the other Gospels tell us, and they remind them of what Jesus had said in Galilee, that he was going to rise, and they remembered his words, verse 8, and they returned and told everyone the story, and nobody believed them. You say, boy, why record all those details? Really? Do we really need all that? Can't we just jump right to the empty tomb? Well, you know, he said some things and he had a rough life, but then he rose. And yet we have all of these details. How do we get to the empty tomb? Well, all of the suffering, all of the fulfillment of prophecy to show that man had nothing to do with the empty tomb. They did not expect this. They weren't looking for this. They didn't steal the body. They were shocked. They were perplexed. They were confused. Bring any other words you want of awe, of of confusion. Something's going on here. Nobody dreamed this up. Well, Peter had gone away. The other Gospels tell us, Matthew 26, 75, after he denied the Lord, he went away and wept bitterly. After he heard the rooster crow, he went away and wept bitterly. But he had come back. When he heard the report of the women, he ran to the tomb to look in, and then we read this, he went home marveling at what had happened. We have this lengthy account of Jesus' life and death and before his resurrection because the Lord wants us to understand our place where we are before his resurrection, then his resurrection, and then the gospel writers tell us this was to fulfill all prophecy that God might be shown true, righteous, holy, merciful, gracious, and all that he reveals himself to be. Father sent his son to suffer and die, but to then be enthroned as king over his people and made king of kings and lord of lords over all creation. His work is or was not to grant greatest wishes for earthly riches to his disciples that followed him at that point in time, but to win victory over sin and death and hell for all ages, to triumph over evil at the cross. Got me to thinking, well, where? What what stories, what histories are they going to write about us one day? They're going to write history about us. What are they going to say about this time period? I'm not saying gospel writers are going to do that. I'm not saying there's going to be scripture written. We know that that's the full canon is here. But what, are they, what stories are they going to write? What are they going to say? That was an odd age. I was at a conference recently, as you know, and one of them said, well, there's the age of enlightenment. There's the age of this. He says, if there's going to be a... Moniker a title over this age, it's going to be the age of absurdity. What are they going to write about us? Well, what will be the highlights? What will be the lowlights? We seem to be, we are in very difficult times as God's people, but this isn't the first time, brothers and sisters. Israel and Egypt, Israel and Babylon. The Jews in the days of Esther, the Jews under Roman occupation at the time of the coming of Christ. The Bible doesn't ignore these events. It doesn't present us some happy story and they lived happy ever after. They they believed in Jesus and everything was roses from that point forward. The Bible doesn't ignore these events. It highlights them and points the reader to God and his work of deliverance. And we have to ask ourselves the question, do we know where we are and do we understand our need of God? Or, as I said last week, are we just looking for the right ruler, just the right leader, and then we'll turn things around and we'll have heaven on earth. Is that really what we're waiting for? Are we waiting for some leader to rise, some earthly leader who will give us just what we want? that was an aside. Coming back at some point after these events, Jesus appears to Peter. Short time after he commissions Peter to be a teacher of the people of God, Peter's been through adversity, personal involvement in his adversity, creating his own mess as it were. And Jesus says, but I've prayed for you, Peter, that after you have fallen, you might be restored and strengthened, and then go and strengthen the people. Do you understand that that's where we're at? We're in that time of testing before the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter begins to learn where he is. He's in a battle. He had to learn humility and dependence upon the Lord he thought he had the the word of Jesus and thought that it was because he was so special and he had such insight and Jesus said it wasn't you that came up with that the Lord gave that insight to you and the Lord alone is going to be your strength without him you can do nothing he says that to all the disciples he says that to you this morning John chapter 15 apart from me you can do nothing but in me You can do all that I call you to do. Then we look at Peter's letter. Looking ahead some years after Peter has been filled with the Holy Spirit. We'll look at that in a few moments. But just bring us to 1 Peter 5. What did Peter learn? 1 Peter 5, he says this to his readers who are suffering. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Peter's speaking from personal experience. He understands this. He's been through this. He knows this. He goes on. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The empty tomb wasn't the end. It was just the beginning for Peter's understanding. The empty tomb challenged Peter's conclusions on what happened on that Friday so long ago. Was this a significant event, or was this just a failed coup? Was this a wasted life, or was this something altogether beyond his understanding to this point? He sees the empty tomb, but note this. He isn't removed from the fallen world. Neither are you. You see the empty tomb. You recognize the significance of the event, but God has not taken you out of this world. This event had cosmic effect, though the full effect of this event was yet future. Peter was transformed by Jesus' resurrection and through the power of the Holy Spirit, as we see in Acts chapter 2, he saw the world differently. He saw his call more clearly, Acts chapter 2 tells us he proclaimed Jesus is raised from the dead by the will of God to save people from their sin. Again, in chapter 3, verse 15, they, the call to be a witness had a greater hold on him than the fear of suffering. That's where we need to see that we are. When the tomb is empty, that doesn't mean that Jesus has left us. He doesn't take us out of this world, but he promises to be with us. And he says, be that witness in this world with this word. Peter was even imprisoned, but that did not silence him. Does the empty tomb change you? Does it change me? Do we glory in Christ? Do we see the world differently? Do we raise our children differently? Do we practice business differently? Do we... Do medicine differently? Do we do whatever task given to us to the glory of God? Understanding that we're not just wasting our time, just getting a paycheck, just just kind of filling time and then, then we, and we die, but that we're living and the Lord is using us as witness in word and deed to those around us. Do we have different hopes and aspirations? Do we have different priorities? Do our values differ from the world? Where are we now? That same age where Peter and his fellow apostles were after Jesus' resurrection? Or in the age of the Spirit empowered to spread the gospel to a world deep in sin? A world that is moving toward Jesus' return when all of the promises will be finally and perfectly fulfilled. Peter's first letter is so fitting for us. Let's look at that together. First Peter chapter 1. Peter speaks to the people. He's been changed. He's a transformed man. And he writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm in chapter 1, verse 1. To those who are elect exiles scattered about according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. The gospel, the good news of the empty tomb means... We have peace with God. With our fellow man. That grace has been poured out. We're God's elect scattered. Look at that just for a moment there. What he says, We're God's elect scattered throughout the world. Strangers. That word exiles can also mean strangers. Sojourners. Pilgrims. However, uh, that, that notion of, of moving through hits you. We're not at home with worldly values, that value talk is is coming up a lot, isn't it? Maybe you hear that. I heard it again this week. What do you, people say, well, that we're talking about values. We just, this is, these are just our values And, and it makes it sound rather innocuous, but those values are not just mere opinions. They're saying you must have our values. Why are they saying it that way? Because they're saying this is what we see as Right. Be careful when you hear that word value. What do you, you know, what values do you hold? Yes, there are things we value, but that has to be directed by God, as we're going to see tonight. Who is God? What does God give us? He gives us his revelation. That's the goodness of God. And he speaks to us and tells us what is right, what is wrong. Some value murder. Some value moral revolution. Therefore, we ought not to be surprised when we suffer for the truth in a discussion with someone whose values are opposed to God's word. Peter says that chapter 4. He says, Do not be surprised when you face trials. Verse 12. These are coming that you might share in Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. The Bible talks about A time in between, because that's where we are most of the time. But the empty tomb leads us to marvel and to look up, because Jesus is going before us and showing us where we will go if we believe in him. Peter thought that after Jesus' resurrection, the battle was over would be over. But Christ came to open the way for sinners to be reconciled to God, and that way is still open that life still grows the number still increases and we are to be messengers of the gospel of the empty tomb god has more people to save and you know where they are they're on the battlefield but think about peter's perspective his how he's been transformed as you look at the along with me there in verses 3 and following what does peter say in his letter And this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, he's talking to those beyond the time of Jesus' sojourn on earth, time on earth. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. You're filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter has a much more far-reaching perspective. What does he say at the outset? God is redeeming a people for obedience unto Christ. There in verse 2, that we've been elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. He is Lord, not only Savior, we submit to Him. His kingdom has been established and will never end. The empty tomb says salvation has been won. Sinners can be delivered from death and from the power of sin because Jesus is Lord over all. As he has come out of the tomb, so we, by faith, come out of the tomb. We're dying to our old selves and living that new life. Where are we now? Listen to those, to a few points from these verses. We're those who have a living hope, verse 3. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Christ has been raised and we with him. Death no longer is the stronger. Hell itself is captive led. He says this as well. You're protected by God's power. Verse 5. Kept in heaven. We are protected by God's power. Guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in that last time. As Jesus prayed for Peter, so he prays for you. He prays for his own. We are to look up to him and to live in him and for him. Where are we now? We are now in a place where we understand that trials do not test or do not question God's sovereignty. But rather, we have the understanding that trials and testing come for the purification of our faith. That we might not be at home in worldly things, in worldly values, wanting to live here forever, but rather to be with God, to recognize our own sin and need to be transformed, to see the world rightly. Thomas Watson writes, no vessel can be made of gold without fire. God purifies us through trials, producing endurance and character and hope as we read in Romans chapter 5. Where are we now? We love Christ, though we do not see Him now. We believe in Him. We rejoice with joy. The Spirit's work is to work faith, hope, and love. An increasing faith, a fervent hope, and an ardent love, a strong love that we would love one another and that we would love the lost in the sense that we want them to see Christ for who he is, that they might not perish but have life in him. Where are we now? We're in a world, we're in the world but not of it. Soldiers in the army of our Lord serving our commanding officer, as Paul says to, to Timothy, act as those who obey the commanding officer We're learning learning that obedience is the way to life. Christ suffered and so shall we. The empty tomb reminds us, however, that there is a way through. That there is life beyond that long march, as it were, that seemingly long march, as it were, to death. A song by James Boyce came to mind this week as I was working on this sermon. That song, Hallelujah, from our Trinity hymnal. We face death for God each day. What can pluck us from his way? Let God's people ever say nothing. Hallelujah. That's where we are. Those who are strong in the faith, though perhaps weak in the eyes of the world, strong, confident of the eternal glory before us, won by Christ, weak in our own estimation of ourselves whatever hardships we face as we follow christ will not keep us from eternal glory peter's reflection on the empty tomb fueled his powerful witness and established his hope his timidity gave way to a confidence of future glory as he writes toward the end of this first letter he says in verse 10 of chapter 5 and after you have suffered a little while the god of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. That is his work now. That is the completed work that he has ahead. Christ has risen from death's prison, or the tomb he light has shed. For his favor, praise forever. Unto God the Father sing. Praise the Savior, praise him ever. Son of God, our Lord and King. Praise the Spirit through Christ's merit. He doth us salvation bring. Praise the Savior now and ever. All of that and much more joy comes from looking into the empty tomb. Looking in faith. Looking not as Peter did, only marveling, perplexed, confused by what he saw. But looking ahead, thinking and marveling at what God has accomplished as we read it in the Word. Living as those who are dead to sin and alive in Christ. Going and telling others the story. that God has opened the way for life over death. He has defeated sin and death and hell. He has opened the way to a coming paradise where sin will be swallowed up, where tears will be dried where we will be made whole. Thanks be to God for the empty tomb and all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God and our loving Heavenly Father, we, we see these events seemingly stretched out before us, laid out before us in detail only to accentuate and to magnify the wondrous power that you have as you've raised your son from the dead and as you promise now, you will do the same. For all those who believe in him, we see that you have the power to do so, that you have the desire to do so. We rejoice. We delight. We glory. We have that living hope. We have that fervent Faith and that strong and ardent love. Lord, help us to live in newness of life because of that newness that is ours in Christ. To tell others this story, caring for them and for their plight that they might come out of darkness to light. Together we might glory in our Lord Jesus Christ who is Savior of the nations and who is worthy to be praised. Hear us, for we ask it in his name. Amen.